The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to come back to an issue that we talked about last year quite a bit, but it's the first time this year we're bringing it up, and it's the question of language, Mandarin in particular. And this year, for the first time, uh, Kenya will now add Mandarin language studies to its national curriculum. Now, for countries in the West, and even in some parts of Asia, that shouldn't come as a very big surprise. Uh, People here in San Francisco, where I am right now, I'm on vacation for Chinese New Year, uh, they are clamoring to get into Mandarin language bilingual schools, particularly the upper middle class and the middle class, who want their kids to learn Mandarin because they feel that that would be an important tool and skill in the 21st century. They think there will be more opportunity for their children if they understand a global language like this. Now, I've said this before. I've been studying uh, Chinese since I was 15. I went to a very prestigious high school back in, in the 80s. I'm dating myself here, Kobus. But, uh, and Mandarin language back then was something that was new. Uh, but it was interesting that even kind of elite schools at that time were, te- were teaching it. And yet there's none of the fear and anxiety in the United States in particular about learning Mandarin, which is unusual in part because there's fear and anxiety about China for almost everything else. And yet in Africa, when the topic of Chinese education comes up in South Africa, in Uganda, and now in Kenya, uh, people really get nervous and anxious about it. The discussion is much more tense than it is in other parts of the world. Yes, we've definitely seen this in South Africa, um, which, you know, South Africa announced that it would offer Mandarin um, as an option for for school kids a, a few, I think, two or three years ago. Um, and people freaked out. Um, and and that, that has been kind of generally the, the reaction, you know, in, in many other African countries as well. Um, and I think it, it has a lot to do... Well, in South Africa, it had a lot to do with two things. In the first place, a, a, a feeling that like more basic things like science and math are already not being taught effectively um, and that this this could kind of stretch the already overstretched education system even more. But then with it, there's always this kind of geopolitical anxiety as well, which relates a lot to Africa's, ex, you know, experience of having French and English imposed on it and having local languages essentially permanently uh, maimed, disfigured and, and disempowered, you know, kind of through the imposition of colonial languages. So it comes with a lot of historical baggage in Africa. So let's dive into the question in Kenya, in part because that's what's going to happen this year, is that Mandarin is going to be part of the primary school national curriculum. Now, as far as I understand, it will not be mandated. It's a choice that families can make alongside French, uh, other, you know, German, Mandarin, all the different languages, the foreign languages will be there. So it's why it caught our interest when we saw an editorial in Daily Nation that ran, Why Language and Culture are the Perfect Instruments 
for Expansion of Chinese Empire. And it was written by Eric Wamanji. And for those of you on Twitter who follow uh, China-Kenya relations, you will be familiar with Eric Wamanji. He is a public relations and communications advisor based in Nairobi, and he regularly writes on Twitter and also in the Daily Nation on China-Africa and China-Kenya relations. A very good evening to you, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us. Most welcome, and thank you, too, for having me. I've been a longtime follower of you on uh, on Twitter. You and I don't always agree on Twitter, but that's what makes this discussion especially interesting. Uh, let's start with your concerns about Chinese language education in Kenya. Let me read a quote from your column, and, and we can use that as a, as a starting off point. You said, language is an apparatus of power and prestige. It constructs and transmits ideologies. It vends culture and generates attraction. It manipulates and persuades. And no matter sophistication in tanks, dominant powers desire to have their language on the tongues of everyone. So you believe, according to your column, that by introducing Mandarin into the Kenyan educational system, it is opening the door to Chinese power in Kenya. Yeah, that is very true. And um, it's not only in Kenya, but uh, anywhere where, where, where language uh, is uh, utilized. Any society that uses language, language has always been used uh, beyond the everyday transactional uh, activities. And uh, language is always packed with ideologies and with the philosophies. And in this case, if Kenya is going to adopt Mandarin and uh, uh, it becomes a lingua franca as it were, or even a second to English, it will be very easy now for the Chinese um, uh, uh, empire, if you will, to now transmit its own ideologies, because the ideologies can only be carried through language. And uh, how best to do that using your own language as a power? So for me, I don't look at Chinese or Mandarin in itself as, um, I, I'm looking at it as neutral, but we know that um, powers, we know that states, we know that empires have used language to advance their own interests. They have used language to advance their own ideologies. And now in this case, you'll everyone knows that Kenya and, uh, and uh, Africa, as it were, we, are, we have been... Um, most of our activities, our, our transactions, our ideologies have been aligned to the liberal West. But now here is China with its ideologies are fairly different from the liberal West the, 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 and especially the post-World War II uh, global order. So in this case, it's, uh, my worry is that we are going to have a clash of ideologies. And this clash will be uh, propagated more so by language than anything else. Okay, that's, I, I see your point, um, and I, you know, and obviously the experience of of the imposition of English, um, you know, in in Kenyan history is a very painful one. But I mean, I have to admit, I'm a little doubtful that. Mandarin will be able to make that jump, you know, because if you if you take about if you think about what it actually took to implement English in in a place like Kenya, it was thousands and thousands of school teachers, the destruction, or you know, kind of widespread kind of 
adaptation of of local education systems, the kind of breakdown of and and, and permanent damaging of entire kind of social systems. I mean, and, and all of that could only happen under a you know kind of an, an extremely violent, full, complete colonial takeover of the country. None of those things are, are true for Mandarin. You know, kind of it's 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 being offered in in some schools. There's none of these this kind of like you know mechanism to flip the entire kind of social you know interaction into a different language. You know, do you think it's really a realistic fear to 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 really compare that kind of historical wound of the imposition of English with the current situation with Mandarin? No, you see, the the thing is, um, the way I looked at the issue, I looked at it uh, from an idealistic point of view, that if Mandarin comes and and spreads in the country and in the continent, uh, just as English did, then it's possible that. Um, it will uh, it will still pervade the the interests of of china but let us and i totally want to agree with you it took a long time it took a lot of effort to for africans for kenya even to get into the drift into the into into the flow of english it will also take a lot of effort and generation this is not something that is going to happen in the next 10 years or 30 years it may take even 50 years if if now China will be consistent and persistent, depending on its uh, space in the global world order and, and especially depending on its economic power. So it's not something that is going to happen overnight, no, far from the truth. And also considering that um, English is still prestigious in this country. Uh, all parents would want their kids to ha have a good mastery of English. That There's no doubt about that. Then we should also appreciate that even the Chinese logogram is so complicated. And I've, uh, I've, I've, I've read uh, somewhere where people are complaining how difficult it is to study it. Eric can tell us about uh, how he found it to be, how easy it was for him to, to, to learn the language. So it's not going to be something that is is going to happen overnight. But in the event that uh, we have a good number, uh, a, a good percentage of the population, say 75%, 50% accessing, understanding, communicating, conversing in in Mandarin, then it's possible that uh, um, the, 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 the language now will be used to, 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 to carry other um, uh, uh, ideologies, if you like, philosophies, if you like, uh, that are China-related. Let me challenge you a little bit on that number, <laughs> that 50 to 75 percent mm -hmm. number. My suspicion is based on the experience in other parts of the world, namely here in the United States. That number, if it's really successful, if the Chinese are so successful, will be close to nine or 10 percent. And I have a feeling that it will be concentrated among the elites, just as it is in the United States. So to learn Mandarin, for the most part, is something that the upper middle class and the upper class do. They send their kids to Harvard to learn Chinese. They send their kids to boarding school, the private schools here that cost $25,000, $30,000 a year. Similarly, in other parts of the world, I think that's the same way. This is not going to be, in my view, something that the masses will adopt like French or English. It is very, very difficult to learn. It's not difficult in my experience, and I've been studying Chinese now for 34 years, and I've had a class... Uh, at least twice a week for all of those 34 years. Uh, it, 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 and I've never really taken a break for more than two or three months, and yet I still struggle with it. I mean, it takes a massive commitment. When people come to me and say, I want to learn Chinese, 
I kind of try and discourage them to some extent <laughs> because I say, are you willing to commit the rest of your life to memorizing lots of characters, to really engaging this language? This is not a part-time passive activity. And that's why I have a feeling that it will never get into the mainstream. It will most likely be something in the domain of the elites. And Kobus, I'd be interested in your take on this here because, and I think the Chinese would almost even prefer that to some extent because the Chinese do have a preference with dealing with elites. And so their preferences, you know, and that's why the Confucius Institutes, which are these language and culture centers now that are around the world, very, very controversial in many countries, including parts of Africa, um, are teaching in Mandarin. And you wrote about that, Eric, in your, in your column about the growth of Confucius Institutes. But think about the Confucius Institutes. They teach Mandarin in classes of 20, maybe 30 kids at a time. This is not going to be a big, wide-scale adoption of the language. So I don't know if the fear that it's going to be 50, 75% of the population will speak Mandarin like the population speaks English, where it's almost universal. I have a feeling it's going to be concentrated among the elites. Now, that being said, that raises a whole bunch of other concerns, Eric. So let's just say that I am right, just for this one moment. I have my magic wand and only the rich kids in Kenya study Mandarin. They go off to the university, to Kenyatta University. They then maybe do an exchange program at Tsinghua University. They speak fluent Mandarin. Does it concern you, or would it concern you, that they are negotiating deals with the Chinese, because presumably these elites will then graduate into companies and into government positions, where they speak Chinese? Now, we would think that a negotiator who speaks the language of their counterpart would negotiate a better deal. But I get the sense that you might question whether or not they're negotiating, not necessarily for, the, for Kenyans, but they would be negotiating for the Chinese because they would be co-opted by the fact that they spoke Mandarin. Yeah, you see what happens in um, any, any, any society. Of course, when the elite, and for Africa, we all know the uh, case of the Comprado bourgeoisie, and uh, the bourgeois would, and that is the elite in this case, number one, even if they are going to negotiate deals, the level of patriotism in Africa, in Kenya, is not the same level of patriotism you will find, say, in, the, uh, in Europe or in the U.S. So um, it, it doesn't matter who is negotiating the deal unless now we change our value system as the elite. That is number one. Then number two, if the, uh, if the, uh, the, the Mandarin will be accessible to the elite, then that means that, um, and it's found to be fashionable, you will realize that quite a number of people will always strive to go to the next level of, uh, 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 of, 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 of uh, uh, the, the next ladder in a, in, the, in a social economic status. So uh, quite a good number will also put in effort to seek to study Mandarin. But you see in Kenya, as, as opposed to the uh, Confucius Institutes, which are actually... Um, domiciled in universities, four universities are now offering, or rather they have four centers in Kenya, the government is interested to roll out. Of course, it will start to roll out in, uh, in uh, some of the best schools in the, in the, in the capitals and in, and in urban centers. But then these are the people who will be controlling the economy. These are the people who will be setting up policies. These are the people who will be dictating even the political uh, pass rate of the, of the country. So regardless of who accesses, you see, if, if a peasant 
just gets to learn Mandarin well, that is uh, uh, neither here nor there. But if an elite is um, exposed to, 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 to a language, and the elite is now even exposed to other philosophical imperatives of the of the uh, owners of the language, then it's going to change their worldviews and their perspective. That's that's how I'm looking at it. Eh? So can can we take that a little bit further, um, Eric? In, in terms of so so you know earlier um, earlier in your you, an earlier answer, you, um, you 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 know you mentioned that Kenya is has been so far very influenced through the twentieth century by kind of liberal Western thinking, um, and you know you mentioned now that you know that that being not only being kind of fluent in Mandarin, but then presumably also being immersed in the you know in a Chinese education system in you know from from kind of Grad school onwards um, would would shape you know these these students like a future Kenyan elites um, views in a different kind of way. Two things: what, what are you um, concerned they might pick up in China, and what are you concerned they might lose from this kind of other Western liberal tradition? Okay, um, let us start with the with the with the what we are going to lose from the uh, Western liberal tradition now. Like I have already indicated uh, before, I've said that the Chinese value system, the way the their perspective towards society, towards life, towards politics is 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 at a variance with the with the West, the liberal West, which we are used to, and we are used to um, a liberal kind of uh, uh, society where we have all the freedoms or, uh, or the human rights, if you will, uh, democracy and freedom of expression, much much as our, our governments really try to clamp down on freedom of expression, but like a country like Kenya, it's, it's still robust. Now, we are likely, the elite are likely to, to look at China and, and looking at it as, 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 a, as a successful uh, uh, economy, as a success, successful society. And we are not saying that 100% they are going to copy what is going to be, uh, uh, copy the Chinese way of life, but they are going to be influenced. So it's very possible, it's very possible that we may see a reengineering of our political system, of, of our public policy system, of um, uh, our, our libertarian society as we know it, as as, as we, we, we say, um, we, 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 we look east as, as, as it was. So that is one of the possibilities. Uh, the more we, we, are, we are entangled with China, the more we are in dalliance with China. And you'll remember that most of the, of the uh, West, uh, Western countries, the, uh, and in this case, especially Europe and the US, um, they have stri- stringent uh, uh, rules of engagement that most of the leaders, most of the elite in this part of the world are uncomfortable with. While uh, in China, well, they, it, it, it's open. That's number one. Then number two, that means that now these elite are likely to go and reshape the thinking in their own countries using their own local languages, even if they're going to use English. But we will, we know that they have been won over from the from the from the Chinese point of view. So yes, Mandarin is going to be an elitist uh, uh, kind of language. Yes, it's important to have Mandarin for 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 more uh, uh, commercial transactions. But in that process, because China on its own, if if it wills, 
it should have the necessary support, the necessary emotional support from the people, their hearts and mind as it were, for it now to be comfortable to know that it's being admired. And it can only be admired when it gets the necessary support from the elite and from the masses if possible. So that's how I'm looking at it. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So, I guess... I'm I'm struggling to 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 agree with you because I, I have this this mindset that says if people learn other people's languages just as a as a universal rule of thumb it makes it easier for people to understand the cultural differences the political differences the societal uh, variances among different people and I've benefited enormously from learning Chinese and I speak French as well of being able to move through different cultures without having an interpreter or a filter uh, so, so that's so. I guess on one level, there's a human level which just learning other people's language is a good thing. I understand where your concerns are coming from, in part because the history in Kenya is so different, and language has been such a weapon that has been used to suppress and oppress. So, I, I very much understand where you're coming from. However, I want to bring up the question of the Kenya-China relationship as it relates to deals. And you have been someone on Twitter who has been very, very critical of how Kenyans have negotiated deals with the Chinese. In particular, let's talk about the Port of Mombasa being put up as a national asset for collateral against the massive Chinese loans for the SGR, the Standard Gauge Railway. That's something that you wrote about and you're very concerned about. And I think one of the things that we've seen over the years in covering China-Africa relations is how the Chinese have become much more sophisticated in dealing with each individual country. They no longer have an Africa policy. They have a Kenya policy, a Botswana policy, a Ghana policy, and they are really becoming much more refined in how they negotiate. The same, unfortunately, uh, cannot be said of African negotiators who are sitting on the other side of the table from their Chinese counterparts, who have unfortunately not advanced in their knowledge and understanding of Chinese culture, language, politics, as fast as the Chinese have. And there is some thinking out there that the Chinese are getting these great deals because the Kenyans and others are not negotiating as aggressively because their knowledge of the Chinese isn't as advanced as the Chinese knowledge of them. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of dealing with your largest trading partner, one of your largest sources of foreign direct investment, and yet discouraging at the same time an understanding and knowledge of their language and their culture and their history, because that's what studying languages are, and how that might impact the negotiations that go on between Kenyans and Chinese. Okay, first I want to clarify, I'm not against the study of uh, Mandarin or of uh, any other language for that matter. Language I okay, use for... Okay, that's a good, a good point to make, because I didn't get that from your column, by the way. That, that, so I'm very glad you actually said that. It, it really relieves me quite a bit. Yes, language in itself is innocent. It, it depends now with the, uh, the people who will be utilizing that language to, to uh, achieve their own ends. But language is a beautiful thing. I would have loved to, to, to learn as many languages as possible. Unfortunately, that one is not possible. So from the, the start, studying Mandarin is not bad. Studying French is not bad. Studying English is not bad. So I really name any other language that you can. 
how it's going to be used, now that one will be put into question and scrutiny. So that one has to be very clear. Then uh, number two, you asked about the deals that uh, countries make and especially our country. What I want to say is that um, when it comes to the port of Mombasa, because uh, stories have been afloat in relation to the port of Mombasa and um, the financing of our standard gauge railway, the SGR, but um, our president who, uh, is on record having said that the port of Mombasa is not a collateral for that loan. So uh, unless now really we have um, uh, real documents and I have not investigated that because uh, that is not my brief to establish really the, the kind of uh, collateral that uh, was pegged against the SGR, then it will be difficult to, to talk about the port of Mombasa. Only what I can say is that what we know, the, the trend elsewhere, is that uh, the Chinese loans, especially those that are pegged on the, on the, uh, 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 on the BRI initiative, have always been collateralized against assets such as ports, and we have seen this across the world. So where I sit, in the event that... Uh, our port has been collateralized, then that one is, is an issue. And it's not just an issue in Kenya, it's, just, it's an issue across the length and the breadth where the, the, the belt and the road is, uh, is, uh, is uh, rolling through, which always begs the question, were the deals entered and were they entered in the, in the, in the most prudent of ways? That one no, one, no one knows because our, our, our government has not shared the kind of uh, contractual agreement they entered to with the Chinese. Um, I have to, yeah, just, just in relation to that, um, the, just one point. Um, <clears throat> I, I think we need, that there needs to be more kind of in-depth research about how many ports have actually been Collateralized, you know, kind of um, the 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 one in Sri Lanka that that is always mentioned. That, as far as I understand, had a set of of complicated complicating circumstances to do with the companies involved. You know, kind of added that that adds some kind of complication to that particular case. Um, and you know, I think I think there needs to be a lot more work done, particularly, and I think that work is being done at the moment. And we hope to interview some some of the people doing that later in relation to to which extent that mechanism that kind of state asset as collateral mechanism is actually being implemented both in Africa and along the Belt and Road Initiative. So so I think that's still a little bit, uh, to, to my mind, that, that's still a little bit up in the air, although, you know, I'd be very glad to, to get more concrete information on that. Um, in relation to, to just the, the, the language issue as a whole, um, do you think, like, if, you know... I can completely understand some of some of the the kind of misgivings that that are that are kind of being being um, that that are coming out in Africa, you know, and it, and it is striking how how powerful people powerfully people kind of feel about the issue of of Mandarin teaching to African kids. Do you think it has to do with a, a kind of a there's there's a, a logic in there that uh, that we should be spending more attention to African stuff? to African languages, that, you know, that African languages have been kind of left behind in the past and that and that the kind of economic development is going to depend on more robust kind of development of, of, of these kind of local assets? Or that is it rather a, a, a question of, oh, Africa should be 
you know, kind of sh should remain loyal to, to its more traditional development partners who also then, of course, end up being former colonial masters. Um, so is it, you know, is it to do with kind of uh, the, the kind of global geopolitical division of power or is it more to do with a, a trying to get a different way of thinking about Africa itself? Okay, now on, on Mandarin, we have to go back to um, the kind of perceptions that, and especially like in this country, the kind of perceptions the citizenry have towards China and the Chinese, which is um, to a large extent, over time, it has been negative. At first, uh, when uh, China started to participate in contracts and they were completing projects uh, very fast, the Chinese were, were, were actually exhorted here. But with the time, the Chinese, at, uh, our attitudes towards uh, Chinese, and especially when it started to emerge, the kind of uh, dealings they've been having with the government, the behavior of some Chinese nationals in the country, then the perceptions have really changed. And there's also fear. There's fear of what would life be like in a, in a Chinese uh, world order or in a Chinese-dominated environment. So people are very suspicious of China. Now, I'm not so sure if Africans are so much concerned about utilizing their own languages for commerce, for technological advancement, for uh, academia, for studies. I'm not so sure about that. What I know is that a good number of people are very comfortable with the traditional, um, uh, if you like, foreign languages. And in this case, English and French, they are quite comfortable with that. And any parent you ask, they'll tell you they want their kids to excel in the, in the, in the, in the, in the two languages, depending on the uh, part of the continent they are, they are in. And in uh, some parts of a capital like Nairobi, you realize that even some parents, uh, they would really want their kids to study French. Now that is the, that is the general, uh, uh, um, state of, of affairs. But with time, they'll realize that there's so much uh, business to be done with the, with the, with the, with the China. There will be more trade, probably many other opportunities, maybe Chinese um, uh, uh, tourists coming to the country. Things may change, and this is just dependent on the perception. So it's all a matter of perception, and people are, are comfortable with the traditional um, foreign languages that they were introduced to. The column is Why Language and Culture Are the Perfect Instruments for Expansion of Chinese Empire. You can find it over on the Daily Nation website at nation.co.ke. Uh, Eric is one is a regular columnist for the Daily Nation. He's also a really amazing voice on China-Kenya, China-Africa relations, as you're seeing a dissenting voice in many cases, but one that's so important for us to all understand and respect. And I just, uh, I, you know, I'm just so happy and excited that we had the chance to speak with you today, Eric, after following you for so long on Twitter and having so many discussions. If people want to follow you on Twitter, what's the best way what what is your handle? What's the best way for them to connect with you? Okay, thank you so much for the kind words. My handle is at then M A N J I S. And once again, Eric Omanji is a public relations and communications advisor based in Nairobi uh, and also a writer for the Daily Nation newspaper. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you too for having me. Kobus, I don't agree in principle with what Eric is saying, but I 100% understand where he is coming from. The fears of, he talked about the new world order, the new power. There's also this sense, as you talked about in the conversation we had last year in South Africa, 
that maybe learning Mandarin will come at the expense of basic math, basic you know English on the and the other basic skills that that students need. And that unfortunately, unlike in the U.S., where the school systems tend to be stronger than they are in places like Kenya or South Africa that maybe Mandarin is a luxury that the average student simply can't afford to do given the, the amount of time that's required. I understand all of that. I just fear that when we have discussions about you know, empire and influence, that it might be overstating the human influence. And I was really reassured, and I didn't get this from his column, but I was reassured to hear in the discussion that he's not opposed to learning languages. He's just concerned about what the broader impact would be for learning Chinese. And, and I get that. It's it's new and whatnot. The other thing which is so interesting was the fact that he, you know, in Africa and in Kenya, there is so much distrust of elites. And he said that there isn't the patriotism that we have in the U.S. or in other countries where people will put their country first. And this distrust of elites ties into the study of, of Mandarin is that fear that if you study Chinese and we don't understand what you're doing, will you sell us out? as a lot of people think that African elites have already done. It's, yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. Um, I think, you know, like well, one of the things that, that kind of came, came up for me when while, while speaking with Eric was, I wonder how many of the people who end up being fluent in Mandarin or using Mandarin then uh, as on a daily basis in, in Kenya will end up, how many of them will have gained that skill through formal study? And how many of them, you know, would have learned Mandarin through dealing with Chinese people, either working for them or trading with them, and or, you know, kind of spending time in China, you know, kind of facilitating trade, you know, like like many, like many researchers that we've spoken before, you know, pointing out that many of the African migrants who live in China end up speaking perfect Mandarin, even, even you know, with, with no formal education in it. Um, so, you know, it seems to me, you know, kind of, which is a long way, winded way of saying that money is probably going to talk in, you know, and, yeah. and whether money talks Mandarin or not, you know, kind of that, that, that I think will be the determining thing. You know, when last time I was in, in Nairobi, it struck me how, coming from South Africa, it struck me how closely connected it felt to the to the Middle East and to South Asia you know there's so many so many Arab Arabic people Arab speaking people in Nairobi um, it's such a cosmopolitan place that it, it you know kind of my feeling was that Mandarin is one of the options you know and Arabic being a, a major other option um, to connecting Nairobi into all of these regional economies I don't know if there's really a different way another way around simply learning all those languages. Well, it's a topic that is much more sensitive in places like Kenya than certainly in other countries like the United States and others. So it's a topic that I think we're going to continue to spend some time to discuss and explore because it ties in with so many of these other issues about the broader Kenyan-China relationship and Africa-China relationship in terms of the fears that people have regarding their their place in the world. And, and Eric spoke to this, which is, it, it's scary. The, the Chinese worldview and the Chinese way of doing things is very, very different. And so that's why I think these discussions that we're having are so important. So what do you think? Do you think it's a good idea for Kenyans to study Chinese or South African children to study Chinese? Uh, or, you know, maybe is it incumbent on the Chinese to speak the local language, to do better to speak French, Portuguese, Swahili, English, Lingala, or Arabic? Uh, 
share us, tell us what you think, you know, on all of our websites and social media. This is one of the most emotive topics that we talk about every year. So we'd love to hear what you think. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.